All right, so we are uh, diving into week three in our series, uh, Help My Unbelief. And last week we discussed um, saving faith and what that really looks like. And today we're talking about how a saving faith is always an active faith. And uh, so this series we're going through is really born out of what I've seen from many students just over the years. Uh, many will profess faith in Christ, but when they walk out of high school, some just walk away from their faith. And I think the most, uh, for most people, I think it goes back to how they handle their doubts and their questions. Um, I think of a story, um, one of the first uh, students I had in this ministry is a guy named Nick, and this is years and years ago, and uh, he was a high school student. And he was a kid that was like just super passionate, super excited about his faith. Um, he was doing impact, he was doing mission, he was doing all the things we talk about here. And then he was even someone that came to me one time and said, um, I'd like to do an event for guys in the high school group. And so we put this, this big event together and we invited all the guys to come. And we had like this, I think it was like a one night thing. We just had like a uh, couple of speakers come in and he organized the whole thing. And I just loved his passion, um, it seemed, for Jesus. And then about maybe 10, 12 years later on, I, see, I run into him at Starbucks of all places over in Belton um, just randomly. And I'm just catching up. And it turns out like he's totally rejected his faith. And we had this hour-long conversation about just where he's at in his faith or lack of faith now. And he just had all these questions and these, these doubts. And, and I look at that and I think it's a classic example of how someone can kind of walk through high school and even part of college and it just seemed to have this real passionate faith for Christ. And then I think it goes back to how they handled or mishandled the doubts and questions that they had. And, and so... Um, just one story of many that I've heard over the years. Because in our, in our world, it's really, I think, cool to doubt everything or to question everything. Because the skeptic or the doubter seems like the smartest person in the room usually. So if, if you're someone that's, that, that's your personality, you're going to appear, you're going to seem like, well, you know, it, it, it seems like the smartest person in the room is the one that tends to like raise the questions, raise the questions, raise the doubts, and those kinds of things. So it's not just unbelievers who question, but Christians can struggle with this as well. Maybe you've experienced times like that in your own life, uh, where sometimes Christianity can make perfect sense, but then sometimes it seems to make no sense, at least in our minds. I think some of the most faithful Christians experience things like this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he once said this. He says, when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. So sometimes we do big mail-outs um, to you guys uh, for things that are coming up. And sometimes whenever there's an invalid address, it'll come back to the church and it'll say, return to sender. And I wonder sometimes if your prayers ever feel like that, where you feel like you're just you're saying things, but it's like your prayers just kind of hit the ceiling. And, and you don't really think of, of that there, there's truly this personal God out there that wants to hear what's on my mind and heart. I mean, people like C.S. Lewis felt that way sometimes. Any Christian you talk to will say they have felt that way at different times. But I think what his statement encapsulates is this idea that sometimes doubt is something that we feel more than something that we think. We may not have all these, like, rationalizations or reasons for it, but at times it can just sit in our hearts and just kind of gnaw at us, and we can't always fully explain it. So it might be something you feel more than something that you think. So here's the, 
again, the two sides of doubt. There's intellectual, what we think, and there's personal, which is what we feel. That might be harder for us to nail down. So I think feeling doubt is more common and at times more powerful. Here's an example of how it can happen. Not in a faith sense, but in a different kind of sense. So let's just, this is fictitious, but let's just pretend like there's this girl and there's this guy, okay? And the girl is attracted to this, this guy who's kind of a, not a good dude. He's not a Christ follower. He's not, you know, walking with Christ. And, and she's drawn to this, this guy. And, and all of her friends are telling her, like, listen, don't, don't be with him. Like, he's not a good influence. He's not someone you should be with. And, and her friends all agree and are telling her this. And then he's pursuing her. And, and then she finally says yes. And they're just going to go out this one time, right? It's just one time. And then, so, so now she's on this, on this date with him, and, and she, she believes, she knows that he's a bad dude, but when she's with him, all that just kind of starts to melt away. Why is that? Because he's charming. He's convincing. She begins to get caught up in the feelings of being with this person, and she begins to question her beliefs. So feeling will almost always overpower belief in what you say you believe. And so put that in a spiritual context, very often what you say, what you claim you believe, at some point down the road, you're going to have a feeling or an experience or a situation happen where the feeling starts to overpower the beliefs. And it happens to us, I think, in our walk with God. So experience causes you to, to doubt what you believe, and, uh, and they can become more powerful. Now, in week one... We define what doubt is and what doubt is not. So here's a review of that. This is doubt defined. This is what it is not. So it is not, it's not skepticism, the decision to question everything. And it's also not unbelief, which is the decision to not have faith in God. But for the skeptic, when this, when this person poses a question, very often this person isn't interested in a real answer. They might just want to disprove everything or... They don't ask questions to understand or learn most of the time. Uh, they're not seeking to build anything, just seeking to deconstruct things. I think of how the Pharisees, how they treated Jesus. Whenever they asked him questions, what was their intent? It wasn't to understand and learn. It was to deconstruct who he said he claimed to be and, and, and to put themselves in, in what they thought was the proper place of power. So this kind of doubt and questioning leads to questioning God's character something that Adam and Eve did at the fall, and this leads to broken relationships. And the next, so here's what doubt actually is as far as it as related to this series. It's asking questions or voicing, voicing uncertainties from the standpoint of faith. So another way to say that is there is unbelieving doubt, and then there is believing doubt. And we're drawing a distinction there between those two ideas. Now, this might surprise you because we mostly associate doubt with unbelief, but we've been talking about how, how Christians, of course, struggle with this. We all do. But there is a way to have some doubts, but do so from a standpoint of faith. And this doubt can be good because it, it, can seek, it seeks after the truth. So um, let's be honest. There are some things that we should doubt or question. Like if I were to run into a person like this on the screen here, trying to sell me a car, right? Now, I mean, I'm no, like, not to be stereotypical, but there is a stereotypical, like, used car salesman 
And if I were to see someone like that or go to a place like that trying to buy a car, I should have reason to be skeptical or doubtful about that person's maybe integrity or character or lack thereof. And, uh, and so, um, so doubting someone like this is probably a good thing because it's going to lead me to the truth, hopefully, right? And, and much of life is like this. In the same way, if we're going to doubt spiritually, we need to do it with the intent to seek truth, to seek after the truth. So in other words, um, you need to question and doubt what our culture tells you. So here's the, here's the weird irony, is that sometimes our culture makes claims and nobody questions it. We need to question it. We should question it. And when you do, you're going to be hopefully led back to the truth. You know, many love to question Christianity, and, and they get so good at it, but the problem is they don't apply that same standard to the philosophies of the world. If they did, they might reject those ideas as well. And then they might begin to see the truth of Christianity. So it is possible, it is possible for someone to not doubt in their minds, but be struggling with doubt in their actions. So Barnabas Piper, he writes about it like this. This is doubt, an example of doubt in action. He says, some will say they never doubt, and intellectually that may be true. Their minds may be wired not to question, but are they obedient to God? Are their lives in line with his word? If not, then they most certainly do doubt in an unbelieving way. It is doubt in action. If belief in action is faith leading to obedience, then unbelief in action leads to disobedience, whether or not the unbelief is verbally expressed or intellectually acknowledged. So again, most of the time we think of doubt as something happening only in the mind. And we tend to separate belief from action. But we can't do that. We can't separate belief and action. Because sometimes doubt, the way it plays out in life is it just looks like un- disobedience. And, and you might say, no, no, I have all these beliefs. I ascribe to these beliefs and these ideas about Jesus. But if your life isn't reflecting it, then can we truly say that that person has, has belief? So there's no better example of this, I think, than Genesis chapter 3 where we see the first sin of Adam and Eve. Turn there in your Bibles if you have your Bibles with you. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where the serpent shows up and is now going to tempt Adam and Eve to the first sin. And it says this in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now what do you notice about that first statement. Well, first of all, he's raising a question. And you notice right away, if you go back and read the first few chapters of Genesis, um, did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? God, God didn't say that. God said you can't eat of the one tree. So right away, what is Satan doing? Well, he's exaggerating. He's raising a question to her. And says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's already raising a question in her mind and, and making her think that God is, is keeping something from them, holding out on them. And what is Satan doing? He is getting her, and also Adam, to question God's character.
character. To question God's goodness. This is what Satan does to us as well. He wants you to question God's character and to question God's goodness. You see, they weren't, Adam and Eve were not struggling with like intellectual questions like, does God exist? I mean, they, they kind of knew the answer to that question. But they knew he was there. They related to him in a real personal level. But where did their doubts begin? They began to question the goodness and the character of God. And that was what happened at the first sin, the first, the first fall. This is where our, our doubts begin as well. We, we start to say things like, I just can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. I will tell you that that is the question I have heard, or the statement I've heard so many people say over the years, is I just can't believe in a God who, and that's where it starts. What is that person doing? Well, they're doing the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did. They're questioning God's goodness. They're questioning God's character. They're questioning God's motives. And they might say, well, yeah, I believe the Bible says this, but, you know, I just, I can't believe in a God who would say something like that or, or do something like that. We start telling God how he's supposed to be, and we begin thinking that he's holding out on us, and this is what Adam and Eve did. And so doubt always usually begins by questioning God's character. And then look on in verse uh, 2 through 5, Genesis 3. It says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice something else. If you were to go back and look at Genesis 1 and 2, you would notice that Eve, Satan's exaggeration, has now led Eve to exaggerate as well. Because she says, that God said, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, God didn't say that. God didn't say you couldn't look at the fruit or touch it or whatever. He didn't say that. He said you just can't eat it. And so now she is, his distortion has led to her distortion, making it seem worse than it actually was. But you notice that Satan, he, he laces some truth into what he says, because if they ate of it, then they would know good and evil. So in one sense, he's right. That if you eat of the, I mean, it's in the name of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you eat of it, we can assume you're going to know good and evil now and know what that is. So he gets him to question God here. And in a sense, he's right. They are going to know good and evil once they've committed this first sin. But the big idea is that Satan is wanting them to think that God is holding out on them. And he succeeds at that. It's what he does to us as well. Uh, here's a simple way of saying this. Most of the time, we aren't wrestling with intellectual doubts and questions. Most of the time, we just like sin more than obedience. And it just comes down to that. And oftentimes, you know, the person that has, like, the intellectual questions, that, that's just, like, a smokescreen because, like, deep down they're like, I just kind of want to rebel. It, it just kind of feels good to be bad. And so I prefer to do that. And then 
the intellectual questions, sometimes they're legitimate and valid, and you're really truly wrestling with those things, but sometimes they just serve as a smokescreen for what's really in your heart, which is, I just don't want to have to be accountable to anybody. And this is the facade I'm going to create that can justify that. And that, that can happen sometimes. So disobeying his commands is the same thing as disbelieving his character. It is saying to God, it is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not perfect. You're not good, or at least you're not good enough. And so if, if doubt in action looks like disobedience, then belief in action looks like obedience. So go forward in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. We see the story of Abraham, or in this part, it's Abram still. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This is belief in action. It says, God tells Abram, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God tells Abram to go to this land he's going to show him. And now what if Abraham, what if Abram said, you know, God, I, I believe in you, but I'm not going to go. You see, God, belief is just something that just happens up here and has nothing to do with my actions. So I, I believe you, but I'm not going anywhere. It, it, does that display true belief? What is that? So, so true belief leads to action, and that's why it's not surprising to read verse 4, Genesis 12, 4, where it says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot, which is his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So what if verse 4 said, Abraham stayed put? Well, that would show, of course, his unbelief. But he makes this massive move when he's an old man on faith alone. He steps out in faith. Now, we know if you read the Abraham story, you will know that Abraham's faith was not perfect. He lived a flawed life. We see countless example of, of, examples of that in the stories of Genesis. But no one's faith is perfect. So Abram still struggled. He still had questions. He still had doubts. But overall, he, he displayed his belief through, obe through obedience and obeying God. This was never seen, more, uh, never seen more clearly than when he was told by God to climb up this mountain and offer his son Isaac on an altar as a sacrifice. You, you may know the story. And, of course, all of that was a test. But what's interesting is that he obeyed until the very end, when the knife was in the air. Because, listen, everything God had, had said seemed to go against who he knew God to be. But he still obeyed. And over in Hebrews chapter 11, we see evidence that he, he believed that if he had to, that God would have raised up a substitute sacrifice if he had indeed, or that he would have raised up his son as a, as, as, a, as a resurrected being. Hebrews 11, verse 19 says, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's how great his faith was and how willing he was to obey. So he would have, he would have followed through believing God would raise him up 
And when you look at Hebrews chapter 11, the, the chapter shows people of faith are people of action. And we see that all throughout that chapter. So I shared with you guys last week how my struggle was not how do I know Christianity is real, but it was how do I know my faith is real? That was this faith crisis I had about my junior year of high school. And asking the question, how do I know my faith is real and genuine? And another way to ask that is, is how do I know my faith is, is good enough or, or strong enough? And the disciples had a similar question over in uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 6, where the apostles come to Jesus and they say, they say, increase our faith. And he replies, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. So the disciples see faith as a quantity issue, like increase our faith. And that sounds like a legitimate question to ask or, or um, comment to make. But look at what Jesus' response tells us. He, he refers to like what, at the time at least, it's not necessarily the, the, the smallest seed in the world, but it's, it's a tiny seed. I've got this little bag of mustard seeds up here. It's about the size of a ball on a ballpoint pen, okay? And I've got about maybe 20 in my hand right now. You can't see it, right? But these are mustard seeds. And he says, if you got faith the size of a mustard seed, right? So what is Jesus saying when he says that? I'm holding it because to make the point that you can't see it. Like I'm, I'm on the stage holding is you can't even see him up here on the stage. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is that faith isn't a quantity issue. It's about a small faith in a big God. So often we're asking the question, do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Is my faith good enough? And I don't think that's the point. Whenever we do that, I think we turn faith into a work, right? You might say it like this, we're not saved by the amount of our faith, but by the object of our faith. And so you and I are going to have a, what seems like a small faith sometimes, a feeble faith. But the question is, when you take that faith and you place it in a God who is ultimate, a God who is sovereign, um, we're not saved by the amount of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith. And so you've got to understand, like, we can't, we can't turn faith into a work and, and, and beat ourselves up all the time for feeling like, I don't feel like I have enough faith or my faith isn't good enough or strong enough because I think we see in the words of Christ here that um, that really isn't the point. That really isn't the point. You see, we don't have to have it all together to become a Christian or to grow as a Christian. We're not saved by having a perfect faith. And so if we're going to handle these doubts and questions, we've got to start by being honest about it. And the church has to be a place where this kind of thing can happen. I love the words in the end of Jude, um, only one chapter in the book of Jude, where it says, and have mercy on those who doubt. And so right there in the words of Scripture, you see God saying to his people that the church should be merciful to those who have questions and have doubts. And so we've got to be a people that, that display this verse, not just to ourselves, but also to the world. 
And if God wants us to have mercy on those who doubt, how much more does he want us to receive his mercy if you're the one who is doubting? So we're going to go 